2: Welcome to Strange Familiars. If you've seen something strange, something paranormal, a cryptid like Bigfoot, a ghost, a UFO, and you want to share your story, you can email us, podcast at gmail.com. Seven huge boxes arrived with copies of my art book, apparitions, illustrations of the other, so they are here. If you pre-ordered it, we will be sending them out in the order in which we received them. But we have started the process of sending them out, at least. If you want to go ahead and check out that, you can find it at our Etsy store. Shop name is Lost Grave, or you can just look up Strange Familiars. It should come up. Or you can look up my name. I think it should come up under that as well.
0: Do you still have the video up where you can actually page through it?
2: Yeah. yeah. There's a video on YouTube, on our YouTube channel, where you can look through it. It's also at StrangeFamiliars.com. There's a place where you can order the book and... On Etsy, the video is up on Etsy as well, so people can kind of see it as we flip through it there. Apparitions, illustrations of the other, it's available now. Any copies that get ordered from us come signed. You don't even have to ask. I'll sign everything, every one of them that we mail out. Right now, it's not on Amazon. I'm trying to get it on Amazon, of course. We want it on Amazon. We want people to be able to get it there, but right now it's not because of covid and stuff their warehouses aren't taking new books or something something like this There's some kind of thing like that going on right now the only place to get it is directly from us so please go ahead and order that if you're interested in my artwork
0: have you thought about getting your own van to drive it around
2: yes (laughs) (laughs) yes i have it'll be at uh, american daydream antiques in york as well probably by the weekend if anyone's local and they want to pick it up there All right. Tonight, as promised, Allison is leading us back into history. The pressure's on.
0: (laughs) It is. (laughs) So this is ostensibly about one aspect of a historical person who gets a lot of coverage this time of year. In fact, I saw that there was a whole extra show about him this past weekend. (laughs) We actually had started recording this last week, so it's not like we watched that show and then quickly put this one together. Right. I think that took a slightly different turn than we're going tonight. First, we're going to go all the way back to 1692. Pretty important date, but out of context, you might not remember exactly what happened in 1692. That's of importance. Do you remember?
2: Well, I do because we did this last week. (laughs) (laughs) Had you asked me before last week, I think I would have gotten it, but I'm not entirely sure. I don't
0: know that I would have like, like that exact year. But in 1692, a girl named Elizabeth Hubbard, who was an orphan, was being raised by her uncle, who was the attending physician to Abigail Williams and Betty Paris. And they were the first two girls in Salem to experience the fits, which would start the Salem Witch Trials. Elizabeth, after witnessing the other girls having fits, started having her own fits, And she was the one that testified under oath and sort of was the major catalyst. And at this point, we're talking about these adolescent girls with amazing power. Now, it's not the amazing power maybe to cavort with spirits or be witches or be hexed, but it's the amazing power of adolescent girls to start a revolution. And so I think that the the basic thrust of this whole program will be that sometimes... What you think it is might not always be what it is.
2: Kinda of like sleight of hand.
0: Exactly. We're gonna go zooming through time and now we're all the way into eighteen forty eight. This is an exciting time. For you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love this time period. <laughs> Photography's less than ten years old. These children are born around the time the photography starts. Girls, rural New York, Arcadia. Kate and Maggie Fox start cavorting with a spirit in their room named Splitfoot. Now, what would you think, Splitfoot?
2: Reminds me of hooves.
0: Yeah. It seems devilish, doesn't it? Yeah, They start hearing these knocks, and then they learn to communicate with the knocks. And then, unwittingly, start the entire spiritualist movement. <laughs> wow. So I think, I, I don't know if... Um, I knew
2: the Fox sisters were kind of heavily involved, but I didn't know they were sort of the genesis.
0: They of- are. And they're living... Um, In Hydesville, New York, after this starts happening, they're sent to live with uh, relatives in Rochester, and they become part of this sort of radical Quaker community. And what I was not really immediately aware of was that uh, spiritualism was also part of incredibly progressive politics. So a lot of people who fell into the spiritualist movement were Quakers and just progressives, anti-slavery abolitionists, the early women's suffrage movement. So the girls start having these, how um, would you say, conversations with Splitfoot in March of 1848. So a few months later, just basically a little bit down the road, there's this huge convention called the Seneca Falls Convention. If you're a little rusty on history, which you know, or you're just not into that particular time period, this is basically the first women's suffrage convention, basically the first women's rights convention in the United States, sort of born of the uh, anti-slavery conventions that have been happening worldwide. So what year is this? This is 1848. 1848? Yeah. It's That's still, early. Yeah, I it mean... still took another 72 years for women to get the right to vote. Yeah. Yeah. You got to start early. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the important convention where, like, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott and uh, Frederick Douglass are all in attendance. This is all happening precisely in the location where these two girls have started a whole sort of quasi-religious movement. Super interesting. Yeah, so while this is not for me to personally debate spiritualism, I feel like that's kind of irrelevant to this actual topic, but I love the idea that this is a time when these girls were listened to, and it's happening at the same time that women are finally starting to be recognized and listened to on a wider scale stage. And it's happening all within this tiny little area and this tiny little movement of very progressive Quaker people. That is what I find probably more interesting than the sad realization that later on in life, one of them admits that they basically were cracking their toes and had fooled everyone into what became the (laughs) spiritualist movement. Now, by that point, it was so entrenched. I mean, by the time uh, one of the sisters recants in the 1880s, We've had 30 years of spiritualism. We've had the Civil War. People are already married to this idea that connection with the other is real. And it's also a pretty heady time scientifically. So it was seen more as part of science proving that you could communicate with another world. It wasn't so much a a secular, I mean, it was more of a secular idea than it was a spiritual slash religious idea. I even found the story, which I was not aware of, of the Edmondson sisters who were, this is the same year, but in November of 1848, who were two enslaved teenagers who made their escape on on the schooner, the Pearl, and became darlings of the anti-slavery movement. And this is all happening in the same year. So I felt like I found all these examples of like teenage girls, while they might not have this amazing spiritual power to, um, you know, vex people or or talk to the dead they are finally having a modicum of of actual power and it's starting in, in small measure
2: right there's like a like a swell there's that. a
0: swell so i feel like it's sort of irrelevant whether spiritualism is real or not in in this story
2: right and you know i'll just say because it's strange familiars <laughs> sometimes with this stuff you fake it till you make it hmm sometimes creating hoaxes leads to really, really strange stuff with people. So the fact that we're going to be talking about them sort of debunking it themselves or even other people debunking it later.
0: I think that's irrelevant.
2: Doesn't necessarily mean that that there's no power to this or no reality to this movement.
0: Yeah. and, And to say, I mean, there, there is even some issue with her debunking, which she later recanted and a lot of what swirled around that aspect of her poverty at the time and her marrying someone who was Catholic and then having a readjustment based on her new religious faith and her alcoholism. You know, everything is pretty nuanced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I am always fascinated with what we find at the time of what people thought Mm -hmm. of these things. So I wanted to read a newspaper article called Rochester Wrappings."
2: All right. This is not about a new hip hop group from from Rochester. No, this
0: is not. And this is actually was in a local paper, The Lancaster Examiner, from 1851. Rochester Wrappings Exposed Doctors Flint, Lee, and Coventry of Buffalo unite in a public statement that they have detected the mode in which the sounds known as the Rochester Wrappings are being produced. Mrs. Fish and Miss M. Fox, the two elder sisters being, it seems, now in Buffalo, where the doctors have witnessed the manifestation. They say that the sounds are produced by a partial dislocation or cracking of the knee joints, of course, subject to the will of the medium. They say, without entering at this time into a very minute anatomical and physiological explanation, it is sufficient to state that the muscles inserted into the upper and inner side of the bone of the leg the tibia near the knee joint, are brought into action so as to move the upper surface of the bone just name laterally upon the lower surface of the thigh bone, giving rise, in fact, to a partial lateral dislocation. I think they're just cracking. (laughs) This is affected by an act of the will without any obvious movement of the limbs, occasioning a loud noise, and the return of the bone to its place is attended by a second sound. Most of the Rochester wrappings are also double. It is practical, however, to produce a single sound by moving the bone out of place with the requisite quickness and of allowing it to slide slowly back, in which case it is noiseless. The visible vibrations of articles in the room situated near the operator occur if the limb or any portion of the body is in contact with them at the time the sounds are produced. The force of the semi-dislocation of the bone is sufficient to occasion distinct jarrings of doors, tables, etc., if in contact, the intensity of the sound may be varied in proportion to the force of the muscular contractions, and this will render the apparent source of the wrappings more or less distant. In reply to this, Mrs. Anne M. Fish and Miss Margaret Fox come out with a card, which reads as follows. We observe by a communication in the commercial advertiser that you have recently made an examination of a highly respectable lady of the city by which you have discovered the secret of the Rochester impostors. As we do not feel willing to rest under the imputation of being impostors, We are willing to undergo a proper and decent examination, provided we can select three male and three female friends who shall be present on the occasion. We can assure the public that there is no one more anxious than ourselves to discover the origin of these mysterious manifestations. If they can be explained on anatomical and physiological principles, it is due to the world that the investigation be made and that the humbug be exposed. As there seems to be much interest manifested by the public on this subject, we would suggest that as early an investigation as is convenient would be acceptable to the undersigned. This has a plausible outside show and will no doubt take in many of the unwary ones. Provided we can select three male and three female friends who shall be present on the occasion, this proviso means mischief, we apprehend. It is to the presence of friends of the rapper selection that so much of the wretched dupery we have succeeded in exposing of late has been owing. When we underwent the attempt of these same ladies to humbug us into a belief of this impostor, one of the friends present was Leroy Sunderland, who is now rapping on his own account in Boston, <laughs> and of whose interview the other day with the spirit of Shadrach Barnes' sister, Ellen Perkins, we published an account. Mrs. Fish and Miss Fox invite a proper and decent examination. Let them stand on a mahogany table in the center of a room, shoeless and stockingless, with no expert in the rapping mystery but themselves in the room. Let the judges, who must be unprejudiced and known to be so, be sure to this point, and then let them communicate with the spirits by rappings or knockings if they can, or with the same modification as to the character of the judges and the persons present. Let them submit to having each of them, her feet held in the hand of an unprejudiced judge, and in that position successfully invoke the sound.
2: I feel like there'd be some uh, pretty creepy dudes volunteering to be the, oh, the foot judge. <laughs> yeah, they,
0: I mean, like the fact that there was a specific mention of being stockingless, I feel like I mean, yeah. that was very scandalous.
2: <laughs> so these doctors came up with this idea without actually attending one of their seances. They're just saying, like, they think this is how. Yeah, it's they're done.
0: trying to find a, a. I think
2: that's a little much. The sliding of the bone out of joint and back in. I mean, that you know. Uh, yeah, I think they're on. They're obviously they're on the the right track if if what the the one sister said was true about Mm -hmm. her toes but uh, yeah I don't
0: know about all that and they go on to have quite an illustrious career and even at one point sit for Mary Todd Lincoln and do a séance for her and that's how they started learning or earning their living doing séances. eventually the the actual cottage that they grew up in is shipped across Lake Ontario to Buffalo and trucked to Lilydale and reassembled oh wow so they really are kind of like, you know, for those who may or may not be familiar with Lilydale, it's the, the spiritualist town, which is still active in spiritualism. And people are still visiting Dale, like famous people. And, and it's kind of a town of, I have never been there, but I assume it's a lot like Gettysburg and Salem in that it has a real kind of ghost economy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In 1888 is when Margareta recants her early days but by that point when you've seen mary todd lincoln
2: so did they uh, sit for mary todd lincoln post uh assassination
0: now after the death of her second son okay it becomes then part of the baggage that her son uses to uh commit her later <laughs> ah. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to ask if there was
2: if this was around the time that... Uh...
0: But it sets this precedent for people who are seeing science as a way to connect with lost loved ones. After the horror of the Civil War, spiritualism grows to great promise. There's the possibility that science could give them another chance, mm-hmm. that maybe religion can't. Around the time of the Civil War in England, a ghost club starts in 1862 and among the members are like very famous people over the, the course of years. So these aren't the original members necessarily, mm-hmm. but among them are Charles Dickens, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Yates and Colin Wilson. So the, these are people who are prominent features in in the paranormal world for years to come. Yeah. And they're interested in finding out whether ghosts are real or not. And they start doing paranormal investigations. So they're they're an early version of Strange Familiars. <laughs> I was going to say, did they have a podcast? <laughs> Probably. I, I can see that, Colin Wilson. I could see him. <laughs> <laughs> not too much later, the focus, the real focus of our story tonight is born, and that is Harry Houdini. He's not born as Harry Houdini because being America, you have to assimilate by <laughs> eliminating any stretch of what you once were to become an American.
2: Well, that was more of a stage name, though, wasn't it?
0: It was, and then it was an homage to previous magicians, but it was also a way to eliminate his Jewishness. <laughs> he was born in Hungary and arrived in the United States when he was just a little boy. His father had gone ahead of the family to Appleton, Wisconsin, which is to me seems like an odd place to look for. I don't know about the Jewish population in the Midwest at the time, but Appleton, Wisconsin, seems remote on a general level. I don't know what the need for a rabbi in that area would have been. So
2: his father's a rabbi. Yeah, his father's a rabbi, and he yes. goes to Appleton, Wisconsin, to look for
0: <laughs> to look for work. Congregation. Yeah. Yes, he leaves uh, Budapest. Yeah,
2: I, I I don't know. I mean, maybe there was a flourishing. Jewish population in Appleton, Wisconsin at the time. In 1878, I, yeah, yeah, I, I, really I, don't, I know don't know. I, I It doesn't seem likely, but
0: it's yeah. possible. Yeah, I mean, there...
2: Or maybe he was looking to establish
0: one. <laughs> maybe he was looking to establish one. <laughs> Rabbi Weiss, which is Harry Houdini's real last name, he was Eric Weiss, moves with his family from Appleton, Wisconsin, later to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and then in 1887 moves to a tenement in New York City on East 79th Street. um, 1887 in New York City would have been the absolute heyday of the sort of derelict Bowery, seedy, dime museum. Just everything that I think that you would presuppose about that sort of tenement living in New York City is what he is experiencing. So he's already had pretty much a, a whirlwind of experience coming from being a little boy in Eastern Europe to the Midwest to now New York City. Yeah. That's an experience not many people would have had. And and the culture shock of that, I think his adaptability in that regard is probably part and parcel to what makes him so successful.
2: Right. Yeah. He had to adapt.
0: Mm -hmm. So he starts doing some early magic and performing. He has a, a short tenure with a strong man. He gets married in 1894 to a woman known as Bess, as her nickname. And he changes his name officially to Houdini as an homage to Robert Houdin, who is an early magician. Now, uh, this is kind of how Houdini came into my life. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't because it's soon October, and that's the t- around the time of Houdini's death, and it wasn't really particularly because of magic. It's because of the side-show photography that... I research in the spring before Houdini's death, he visits York, Pennsylvania, where we're from, to look for sideshow photography for his collection. He's an early circus collector. He has a huge collection of spiritualist, magical writings, old grimoires, and he's an early collector of sideshow photography.
2: Amazing. Did he have a podcast?
0: <laughs> I, w- I would have listened to that. And he had been here before because I don't know if this is as common knowledge about Houdini, but he actually started off his circus days in across the river in Lancaster, Pennsylvania with the Welch Brothers Circus. So that's kind of where he started. He popped up in something I was researching and I was like, why don't people talk about the fact that he was a circus performer? And so I delved into his life and kind of came up with more along this story.
2: So just to note, like why he would have been coming to York New York would have been number one for circus photos. Mm -hmm. But pretty much after that, it would have been New York, right? Yeah. 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 So we had a big uh, history of that, of circus uh, performers being photographed here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The the major photographers would have been Eisenman and Obermiller and Kern, who were vaguely related through marriage and were in New York City, right in that major area where all of the historical, like theatrical performers would go, whether they were... Big names, and would go to see like more established photographers, or whether they would they were you know part of the circus and would go to see more of the dime museum photographers. Mm-hmm. If you were on a route going through the Mid Atlantic, you would probably stop in York, though, to get your photo taken or to have copies made. That was another thing that photographers would do. They were so numerous that at one point they said that they sent out a hundred thousand in a season for certain, certain performers. This is amazing. That's a lot of photos. Yeah. So I, the fact that I can't find more is (laughs) kind of haunting, but for right now we're in the mid 1890s and Houdini and his wife have just joined the Welch Brothers Circus in Lancaster. And they're starting off with one of their first magic acts called the metamorphosis. Now, did you know that Houdini was also a wild man?
2: Only because you told me.
0: He was a professional wild man, very briefly. So
2: connecting Houdini to the wild hmm. man phenomena.
0: That's true. His name as a wild man was Progea.
2: Now, do we know, did he have prosthetics? I think he did he have like or... sort
0: of like a, a costume, as it, as it were, but... Part of what uh, spurs this next part of the story is that he also, at this point, does a little bit of seance and clairvoyant work himself, and he finds it really disingenuous. He's really great at it, like he does research and in cemeteries when he's in certain towns to see if he can figure out ancestors, so he has like a little heads up on what to say to people. And he's obviously very charismatic. He does a good job cheating people, but he doesn't feel great about it. And that starts his crusade against spiritualism. All the time, though, professing to want to believe and want to be proven wrong. He has a very open mind about it. Like, while he wants to take down the fake spiritualists, he still advocates for the idea that it could be real. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to read you a couple little things about where Houdini was in our area before we take off for the next portion of I'm very interested. Houdini. Welsh Brothers' show on the west side. This is from the York Dispatch, York, Pennsylvania, 9th of May, 1895. The Welsh Brothers' circus tents have been removed to the corner of Newberry Street and West College Avenue, where a performance was given this afternoon and another will be given this evening. There will be performances every afternoon and evening this week at this place. There are some excellent new attractions with the show this year. Schofield the juggler is one of the best ever seen here and the Houdini's present a remarkable illusion the acrobats trapeze performers contortionists and clowns all give admirable exhibits Mr. Joe Kearney well known in York is an excellent clown and is always warmly received he and his companion Mr. O'Brien keep the audience in a good humor continually so I think I looked this up at various points they move around even just moving around York during these little tours and it Um, Just for location, if you're vaguely familiar with York, I I think at one point they're kind of where the depot is. (laughs) This will only be relevant to people within a small window of York, Pennsylvania. But um,
2: Should I tell my enduring memory of my first visit to the depot?
0: I think it's very similar to most everyone's first visit to the (laughs) depot, but please go ahead.
2: The first time I went to the depot, my enduring memory is not being able to decipher where the urine from the men's room stopped and the beer spilled on the floor outside the men's room began. And I I mean that quite literally. All floors were wet with something.
0: I always remember wanting to wear shoes with a little bit more of a soul on them than you might normally
2: raise <laughs> <laughs> up a little bit. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I, I, th- I said, there's one of those old clubs that just from years of paneling and smoke that it became load bearing at some point And, and just, <laughs> I think the smoke filled paneling was keeping it.
2: Yeah, if if you were, like, nicotine starved, you could probably scrape that panel mm-hmm. in, and, and smoke it and get enough nicotine to, to get you by.
0: And at one point it was called uh, the Brooklyn Alley Depot because it, that's actually a tiny little disused alleyway from the turn of the century called the Brooklyn Alley. When I first started going there, even before I was of age to drink there, they would have underage punk rock shows and even Bikini Kill played there. So, so they're... what
2: I'm taking from this... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that Harry Houdini played The Depot? He did. And that I also played The Depot. So I'm pretty much on par with Harry Houdini.
0: Yeah, and in between that Bikini Kill played. So it was like a 150 year set. But yeah. <laughs> it was. Sometimes wading through all the bands does feel like a 150 year set. <laughs> oh, I've
2: definitely seen Bill's at The Depot where. <laughs> It felt like 150 years for sure.
0: But I wanted to kind of reclaim this lost South Central Pennsylvania heritage. Like Houdini is just as much ours as, as New York City. Yeah, like,
2: really. Like he's, he literally starts he out. He starts
0: his magic career kind of <laughs> yeah. in this area. And I, um, I wanted that to be more of a known concept.
2: And with circuses. I mean, I think you, you hear a lot of vaudeville in mm-hmm. association with Houdini. But you don't hear much that he started out with circuses.
0: Yeah, because circus kind of morphed into becoming right. vaudeville. Yeah, by yeah. the
2: time he get he reaches his peak popularity, certainly that's yeah, more the circuit he's playing. But he starts out with circuses.
0: Yeah, he's kind of like one of those people that's kind of on the on the cusp of a new era. He's a little old or a little young to be part of that great like dime show tradition. Mm-hmm. But he's he's too old to live like into the forties and fifties and transition the way some vaudeville stars made it to radio. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's in like kind of a. a A different window there.
2: You know what's pretty wondrous and magical?
0: What's wondrous and magical? Puppies. You're absolutely right. There's no fraud in that.
2: No humbug in puppies.
0: No humbug in puppies. It's just pure love.
2: If you have a puppy and you're having problems with your puppy...
0: Even that sounds adorable. (laughs) I know, right? Like puppy problems. Puppy problems.
2: (laughs) If they're mouthing and biting, if you're having trouble with potty training, fear and nervousness, barking, if they're chewing on furniture or shoes or other things they shouldn't be chewing on, if you need help with crate training, hyperactivity issues, leash training and more, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you. They have a relationship-based approach that helps you and your puppy become perfect for each other. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy has online sources like video lessons, a secret Facebook group. One-on-one options are also available. Go to SIDHappens.us. Look for that 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. Let them help you understand how your dog thinks and apply proactive training methods so you and your puppy can become perfect for each other. Again, that's SIDHappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page.
1: Thank you.
0: So after his initial run with the Walsh Brothers Circus, he becomes manager of the American Gaiety Girls, which is a burlesque show. It folds in 1896, and he starts, you know, things aren't working as well, so he kind of realizes he has to do something else. I mean, this is a common theme even with circus performers in that one shtick is not really enough to, Mm -hmm. to fulfill decades of a career, and you have to kind of pivot and make a new act or just do something different, get into a different aspect of the business. And so he starts doing these like escape routines. But at the same time, he has in the back of his mind this sort of idea that uh, spiritualism may or may not be real. He's really, uh, during this um, time period from the turn of the century till say, 1910, he's really starting to get his career established and becoming a household name doing elaborate tricks, and I think one of the appeals of Houdini is that it's not so much hidden behind a curtain. Like, he's willing to do these amazing tricks right in front of people, and Mm -hmm. he's still able to escape. And maybe that's what he doesn't like about spiritualism, in that it does seem slightly disingenuous. Like, it's always in the dark. There's some other layer that's protecting the person that's performing. And his idea is that he is not a superhero. He's just a regular man, At one point, he meets the actress Sarah Bernhardt, and by the time she's older, she's lost a leg to an injury, and she tells him that she thinks that he's so great that he can manifest a new leg for her, and he says, you know, I'm I'm just a man. I don't have superpowers, and I think maybe other people claiming that they do was bothersome to him. So in 1913, his mother dies. He's exceptionally close to his mother and goes into a period of mourning where even he starts to seek some comfort from seances and revisits those spiritualist leanings because he, he desperately wants to reconnect with her. So this is sort of the, the genesis of this next era of his performing and that he will start to incorporate anti-spiritualist notions into his performances where he'll do a trick But he will also talk about why spiritualism is fakery. He starts to meet some famous people that are interested in spiritualism that propel this further. Like in 1920, he meets Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who, although he is a medical doctor and a pretty famous author by this time, is well known, I think like within the paranormal community, for being involved in a lot of hoaxery, frauds um famous
2: like not necessarily to his origin but he gets tangled up in the like the Cottingley fairy photos he's he's, a big supporter of those
0: yeah he's an adjunct part of the piltdown man right so he he definitely wants to believe arthur conan doyle had suffered a loss as well his son dies in world war one and he's desperate to get in contact with him i think all of this um this loss, the Spanish American War, the flu pandemic—these are all major catalysts for people to who have had huge amounts of loss—to rekindle the spiritualist movement. And Houdini starts attending these seances with various mediums in London. And now, even at this time, they are like celebrity mediums—people mm-hmm. who are, you know, worth more than than your ten cent person on the street. But for Houdini, it doesn't really matter. He's keeping an open mind, but at the same time, I think there's doubts are creeping in. Mm -hmm. Later on in Houdini's career, he releases a book called A Magician Among the Spirits, which kind of relates the whole history of his friendship and disillusionment with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and spiritualism largely. And he tells the story of A seance which occurred between Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's wife, Lady Doyle, who acted as a medium. This is probably one of the biggest turning points in Houdini's disillusionment with spiritualism and spiritualists. Because Lady Doyle, medium that she was, gives a seance wherein she professes to bring forth Houdini's dead mother. Now what she failed to even barely research, which this is, I feel like this is a research failure. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if you're going to make a convincing attempt, then when when you at least basically know, like, there were researchable facts about Houdini's family. She gives a message to Houdini from his mother. There's a cross on the paper. There's a message to him in English. And when it's all over, Houdini reveals eventually that His mother never spoke English. She spoke to him in German. She was the wife of a rabbi, would probably not put a cross on the paper. And he's completely disillusioned with Lady Doyle's lack of credibility. He said he went into the the seance willing to believe, even to the point of wanting to believe. And when he eventually starts calling people out, there's a lot of flack from the spiritualists who have a lot to gain By retaining spiritualism,
2: Mm -hmm. you know he's getting more famous all the time, and to have someone sit there and sort of try to expose their
0: Their grift, yeah. But at the same time, this is what I think is kind of funny: is that he is making he has the same grift off of revealing spiritualists that spiritualists have.
2: Yeah, and that I mean, is it is it the same grift? I I think as someone who's hurting, right? Yeah, he probably felt more wronged mm-hmm. than some, like like say somebody said like you go to a medium and they're like you're gonna find buried treasure you know mm-hmm. y- you just have to go you know down that street and, and look and you'll find the buried treasure and you don't find it you go well i dug in the wrong place or maybe whatever that you know or later
0: on you start to say well maybe the treasure was my children all along exactly
2: yeah. something like this but when you're like you have this connection with this dead loved mm-hmm. one and they're they're essentially being the mouthpiece mm-hmm. for your dead loved one and then they're giving bad information, incorrect information.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Let's give Lady Doyle the benefit of the doubt and say maybe, maybe I don't she think... was getting messages from somewhere, even if it was her own subconscious, mm-hmm. and not intentionally trying to pull the wool over Houdini's eyes, right? Yeah, because this
0: wasn't like a, if anything, this was supposed to help bolster his belief.
2: Right. But I can also understand. His you know disappointment, even offense at mm-hmm. the
0: results of that so it's not much later than this that he starts to have sort of open conversations within newspapers and journalism and starts giving public lectures on on spiritualism. This is just a few weeks after the seance, and this is a letter to the editor in the New York Times, written by Houdini. This is from the 5th of July, 1922, so, you know, less than a month from the seance. The headline is Houdini on Spiritualism. He has witnessed many seances in 30 years, but is not convinced. I have read the letter of H. Edwards Ficken and believe it calls for an explanation on my part. I did not expose Mademoiselle Eva, the protege of Mademoiselle Bisson, and had given my promise not to do so to the Honorable Everard Fielding during the eight seances at the rooms of the Psychic Research Committee in London at which I was his guest. I gave him my word that nothing would be published by me until after the Psychic Research Committee had published its proceedings regarding its seances. They were published about a month ago, which released me from my promise, and I can now give my views publicly. I feel that it's not necessary to explain that I did not expose Mademoiselle Eva in London. In the majority of these seances, I was one of the committee to examine and hold Mademoiselle Eva in the cabinet. Each seance lasted three hours, so I had ample opportunity in the 24 hours which were spread over a period of at least one month to carefully note what the medium was trying to do. She positively did not do anything that would cause me to believe she was doing something which was not produced by natural means. I have made minute detailed notes of the hundred seances which I have attended and participated in on my last trip abroad, and although those present saw and heard extraordinary things, I was not convinced. I'm afraid that the greater part of things we read about in full-page articles are very much like Sabonet's materialization, which is now being so vigorously denied. At the time it appeared I knew it was not possible, and having gone carefully through Shrink's Nazig book— All I can say is that to my belief, it could not have happened, but it might have happened in the minds of some who were there or their confidences have been betrayed. I have one of the largest libraries in the world on psychic and spiritualistic data, have personally met all the great mediums, and am yet open to be convinced. I want to put on record that I do not say there is no such thing as spiritualism, but state that in the 30 years of my investigation, nothing has caused me to change my mind. What's convenient about this is that... um, a lot of these messages correspond with free publicity for other things he's doing. <laughs> so he has a movie called The Man from Beyond, and he says, all messages from spirits are fake, and this coincides with, with my movie. So, <laughs> so you can have a, a sensationalist headline, and oh, by the way, go see my movie.
2: Still done today.
0: Hey, absolutely. In 1923, Scientific and American magazine, the one that is still in existence today has a contest offering $2,000 to anyone who can take a spirit photograph. This isn't, you know, like a spiritualist campaign. This is is a scientific approach to this. Right. They want to see if someone can do it. And they have a number of people on the committee, which eventually includes Harry Houdini, who's probably the most important person on the committee. So he starts to up the ante. And, you know, that last article... It's leaving room that there's a possibility. This next article Houdini calls spirit messages all fakes. This is from the New York Herald, 12th of November, 1922. Morbidness and melancholia induced by interest in psychic phenomenon threaten the health and sanity of many persons. Harry Houdini, president of the Society of American Magicians, declared this at the annual dinner of the society here. He spoke of his 25 years' investigation of the subject and said he had never seen anything to convince him that that there had been a single communication from the dead. I have never seen any of the mediums or spiritualists do anything or produce a single effect which I could not, through my knowledge of magic, account for or duplicate. I've had nine packs with the dead who, while alive, agreed with me to try to communicate with me from beyond, but each has been fruitless. He said he has worked with Sir Oliver... Lodge and other scientists engaged in the study of psychic phenomena and respected them. But he added, When I demonstrate to them the secrets and reveal the methods used by mediums, and they tell me that I too am a medium, in spite of myself, I am forced to conclude that they merely do not know. I have seen people who previous to the war never concerned themselves with things psychic, now delving into it to the point of hysteria. It is conducive of morbidness, brooding, and melancholia. It becomes an obsession very quickly, and I would warn against it threatening the health and sanity of those who indulge in it.
2: So he's definitely coming out a little more forceful. Yeah, he's a
0: little more forceful. And it's starting to break his relationship with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I mean, this is a man who saw some photos of a kid with fairies. Did you know that the picture... This is something I only recently found out. The pictures that the girls cut out to use as the fairies and the Cottingling fairies also had a Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story in them. The fact that that didn't seem... Obviously, oh, so they him? were
2: they were illustrations used in a book, book that, that had he, uh, one of his historian. stories in <laughs> Oh my god, I did not know that. <laughs> Speaking of the the Cottingly Fairy photographs, which we've talked about before in uh, several episodes, but I know we talked about it at length in the uh, the one we were talking about that Bigfoot photograph. Mm-hmm.
0: So now uh, a sort of war between spiritualism and and Houdini's anti spiritualism starts happening in the papers between. Conan Doyle and himself, and they have sort of running rebuttals against each other. I mean, Conan Doyle is not—he's not a rube. He's a literate man with a lot of respectability, and he's a—he's a, a medical doctor. And you would think is someone who is the father of sort of modern detective novels—that's <laughs> the other thing. That's like when you when you use clues and science, and yeah, it's curious to me how he could have been so easily duped. Or maybe it's just for want of belief, I yeah, think, sometimes. Yeah, I think sometimes so.
2: that certainly figures into it.
0: So Doyle challenges Houdini's statement, questions the accuracy of the handcuff king's deductions. <laughs> 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 Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, noted author and spiritualist, today took up the challenge issued by Houdini the magician in an article published in the Oakland Tribune Sunday by writing a letter to the paper questioning the accuracy of the handcuff king's deductions. Houdini declared in the Tribune magazine story that Doyle was a dupe, and that he had been deceived by the Thompsons, the Welsh Colliers, Thomas Brothers in Cardiff, and the masked medium. Sir Arthur, in his letter written from Los Angeles, denies categorically that he was a dupe of the Thompsons, defends the Welsh Colliers, alleges that he never endorsed the masked medium, and defies Houdini to produce any statement of his to this effect." If Houdini can expose fakers publicly by name, he will be doing a great good, said the noted British author. So here's his actual article. My attention has been called to an article by my friend Harry Houdini in your issue of May 29th. So as far as opinions go, they are, of course, perfectly honest, and he has the same right to them, which I have to mine. So far... Also, as he exposes false mediums, he is doing the best work for spiritualism, which any man could possibly do. But he is himself in some ways a dupe. It's easy to be duped by incredulity as by credulity. (laughs) 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 As to assertions concerning him, I am amazed that a man in his public position should make such utter misstatements, which a very little inquiry would have set right, and I will take them in order that I was the dupe of the Thompsons in New York. So these are other mediums that they've been been investigating. There's not a word of truth to this. I went to their seance in the company of my wife, of a friend, Mr. Preston, of Mr. Stephenson, the explorer. We were all four of opinion that the proceedings were fraudulent. I said so at the time, and I put the facts on record in my book, Our American Adventure. Mr. Houdini's assertion is founded upon an absurd account published by one Mr. Hoffman, who was an interested party being a member of the circle. This account has been publicly exposed by me and Mr. Houdini, and I should know that I have complete evidence to show that I never acquiesced in the genuine nature of the proceedings, but was convinced to the contrary. Number two, that the Welsh Colliers, Thomas failed signaling but convinced Doyle that they had brought him back his son and a brother. There is not a word of truth in this. The Thomas brothers were purely psychical meetings who never brought back or professed to bring back anyone. Their performance... I only saw once, was witnessed by the Chief Constable and Deputy Chief of the Cardiff Police. These police officers were not spiritualists, but fully endorsed my conclusions. My son or brother did not come into the matter at all. At a subsequent meeting in London, the Thomas brothers, under very bad conditions, produced only some minor phenomenon. These variations, of course, are quite normal and occur in all spiritual circles. Number three, the masked medium was never endorsed by me. I did not understand her performance any more than I understood some of Houdini's performances, but I was most careful when asked for my opinion to refrain from stating that it was due to psychic power. I defy Mr. Houdini to bruise any statement of mine to that effect. There only remains the case of the Zanzigs. I examined both these performers carefully, and I concluded and still conclude that they did their little tricks, sometimes albeit by telepathy, which is, of course, a mediumistic gift and has nothing to do with spiritualism. (laughs)
2: Wait, so they weren't spiritualists, but they still had telepathy. Yeah. they still had powers, just not... Not spiritualist powers. Wow, okay.
0: Cushman, a well-known man of science in Washington, shared my experiments and my conclusion. So also independently did Mr. Bagley in England. What is Mr. Houdini to put against this except the denial of the Zanzigs, which was, of course, put forward to prevent a brother magician from probing his tricks? Such a denial is worthless. If Mr. Houdini accepts this, then he must also accept the assertion of the Davenports that they did their tricks by spiritual means. A lot of these tricks kind of show up in other forms in the movie The Prestige. Mm. Like the, the water trick, um, that's Houdini's, mm-hmm. and then the one with the two doors, that's more uh, oh, a, yeah, a Davenport yeah. trick. Oh, okay. I repeat that if Houdini can expose fakers publicly by name, and I've never heard of him doing so, he will be doing a great good If all his assertions are as wild as those about me, I would accept his exposures with a good deal of caution. Yours very truly, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. They have sort of a a back and forth for a while in the public and private realm. It's much more civil than people would have today. I think Mm -hmm. they wanted to maintain a friendship, but it was just fracturing beyond any sort of repair. And in 1924, Houdini uh, publishes A Magician Among the Spirits, which is sort of an expose of of his his 30 years dealing with spiritualists Mm -hmm. that sends the end um and he offers to send a copy of it to uh sir arthur conan doyle but the friendship ends before that (laughs) but the scientific american study which or contest which i was talking about earlier continues and so the, the part of what Conan Doyle and Houdini were doing were just going from medium to medium, trying to find someone who could produce effects that he couldn't explain. Uh, explain. So they've, they've upped it at one point. Houdini even offers some of his own money. He wants to up the ante. I think he's, he, not just for the publicity, but he's, he's concerned that maybe there is someone out there that he's overlooking that could give us all a link to the other world. Probably the most important person he comes in contact with, medium, as it were, is a lady named Mina Marjorie Crandon. Now, I've I've heard people talk about how exceptionally hot she was. Like, <laughs> oh really? Um I don't I I mean maybe that was a ma- maybe that was her real trick because I've seen pictures and I you know I I, obje- I know we're not supposed to objectify women, but objectively she wasn't all that attractive. <laughs> <laughs> I will be the judge of this. <laughs> I think part of her appeal is that she would do things like to prove that she wasn't courting some sort of mischief. She would give her seances in like a slip with nothing on underneath it. Mm. And at one point later on in her career, ectoplasm comes out of other areas. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) But she's the, she's the wife of a, a wealthy Boston doctor and she's like the hot commodity. She's the, she's the closest thing to being able to win that prize. And Houdini goes to investigate her. They have a series of seances with her where they put all these different, like, uh, almost scientific tests to her. And Houdini does something where he's sitting next to her and he's like, cut off the circulation to his leg for a huge portion of the day. So he could be super sensitive to her movements. And he figures out that, that it's basically all trickery. But she's in league with like, you know, the big league of spiritualists, and they really don't want this to get out or for him to expose her. And so they're all working in, in consort to try to discredit Houdini. And after um, he has this big expose of her in January of 1925, she is the one who uh, eventually, through her brother, who's the one who she channels, who says that um, Houdini will die before November. Of that year. Of that year. So Houdini's willing to put his money where his mouth is, and he has. this is an article that says, Houdini backs fraud charge with $10,000. He wagers some he can expose spiritism of medium and Harvard professor. Harry Houdini arrived here today with $10,000 in bonds, which he has posted with city collector Mr. McMurrow as a forfeit if the magician fails to make good his challenges to Marjorie, also known as Mrs. Leroy G. Crandon, famous medium and professor William McDougal of Harvard. I brought $10,000 with me to support my statement that Marjorie Crandon is a fraud, said Houdini, and I am here to wager Professor McDougal of Harvard his salary for one year, that while he may be a good psychologist, he is no mystifier, and that he can neither explain nor duplicate my own tricks, but I will duplicate every trick which Marjorie Crandon ascribes to her so-called spiritualism. She is a dangerous woman, and I believe I am doing the public a service in showing her up.
2: Wow, that's uh, pretty bold.
0: And she's another one of these celebrity mediums, and while she doesn't really need the money because she's married to a wealthy man, she likes the celebrity aspect. The thing that's funny about it is even after he exposes her, um, it doesn't stop her. She goes into this new realm of like making. I, I, I guess she kind of took like animal guts and formed them into things, and then they they would see her with this physical ectoplasm coming out of her, and it's, it's actually. I found it really pretty gross. There's one picture of like, ecto, quote unquote, ectoplasm coming out of her nose, but it's just sort of like guts of like innards of animals coming out of her. Wow. But it, I guess it was enough of a trick to, to fool people. And she continued to have a career even after Houdini goes on to, to pass away.
2: There was a book on ghosts that I got out of the library as a kid that had a picture of somebody manifesting ectoplasm. I wonder if that was her in that. I have a very distinct memory of.
0: Yeah, it's very physical, like, in the way that other times if you see someone with ectoplasm or, like, some of the spirit photographs, it's very hazy. This is a very physical thing. Mm -hmm. There is not only just her reputation, but there's potentially money on the line with the Scientific American Prize, which was never awarded to anyone. And then the great indignity of it is that Houdini started reproducing her tricks and making a mockery of her. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but at this point, there were a lot of people who are, even if they don't see themselves as being part of a fraud, are very heavily invested in spiritualism, or at least heavily invested in spiritualism, not being seen as filled with people that are fraudsters. Right, yeah. So, Houdini's not making any friends in the spiritualist world. So, Marjorie's uh, pretty pissed off. And she does... The last thing that she's able to do. She puts a curse on him. (laughs) I don't think Houdini thought that there was any legitimacy to this curse. I don't think he saw it as a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm not even sure that there's much validity to the curse. But whether purposefully or incidentally, it does come to fruition.
2: Be careful what you curse for.
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) This is nearly a year before he dies. An article appears in the Hartford Courant. Will Houdini die, as Marjorie said? If the noted medium Marjorie gets into proper contact with her spirit control today, Herr Houdini, bane of mediums, who appeared in Hartford two weeks ago in a magical act, will die. Last spring, the magician called the medium a fake. It was soon after this that she said, I call down a curse on this man's head. He will die on the 21st of December, 1925. Houdini had made no preparations for his funeral. He continues to challenge mediums to do things with spirits, which he cannot duplicate. And at present, he is in New York, where he is adding tricks daily to his already replete repertoire. His comment on the curse was, I may die on the day she mentioned. We never know when our maker will call. But if I die on that date, it will be nothing more than a coincidence. Till then, Houdini will continue with his work. Later on, she does say that he'll be dead when that when that date comes to passes. You know, with most most of these predictions, you know, whether you're a doomsday prepper or not, you know, like when the, when the date comes and there's got to be some way to wiggle out of it, and then you give another date. Well, th- another date was given, which is um, Houdini will be dead by November, and then he does die on uh, on Halloween of 1926. Was it Halloween? It was Halloween. I think um, everyone's.
2: So she was wrong the first time, essentially, and then. Readjusts her date. Yeah. And then, but she is right yes. eventually.
0: Yes. Like, well, it wasn't her. It was her um, brother who she was channeling. Right. <laughs> Why give her the credit?
2: Now, the program we watched sort of hinted at this idea that maybe the spiritualist hired somebody to punch Houdini. Yeah, like, the the,
0: like a great spiritualist mafia came along and... Um... Yeah, they, I think
2: that seems unlikely, right? I mean... Why are you going to punch him? Why
0: Why wouldn't you just... just
2: if you hire somebody to do some real Yeah, damage.
0: or uh, there was another idea that perhaps he was poisoned.
2: Uh, and then poisoning seems more, the, more in line with taking people out at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many true crime stories from the past feature these, you know, quote-unquote black widows who've mm-hmm. killed a number of husbands with arsenic or whatever. I, to hire someone to punch him and hope you're going to kill him with mm-hmm. a punch to the gut... Is, just seems completely almost silly. Like, that's you're not going to hire... Here, I'm going to hire you to punch this guy in the stomach and hope it kills him.
0: Yeah, you know why Houdini died? Because he was born at a time before antibiotics. <laughs> is that really? <laughs> you know, if he had had a peritonitis resulting from appendicitis today, they would give him antibiotics and he would be okay. He didn't go to a doctor till too late and he was... I lived at a time when sepsis could quite easily kill you,
2: so what happened is somebody he, he said he could take a punch cause he was a boxer as well mm-hmm. He said he could take a punch from anyone, right and uh, th- this person punched him when he wasn't fully ready, i guess
0: yeah, but the the idea that um that that was the cause of his appendicitis is even being debated right now. It seems likely that he was suffering from quite a few ailments and that was like maybe that was just the perfect storm mm. And also the fact that he didn't go to receive treatment. You know, I think there's probably a raging amount of ego that's that Houdini is is not acknowledging as well. Like, you can't be... I think anybody that goes by just their last name... <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, whether, whether you're... You know, if you're just going by one name... Share. Madonna, Danzig, Morrissey... <laughs> it doesn't matter what the one name is. It's because... Your ego is so great that you only need one name. Oh. That's that's how it works, Renner. <laughs> so I think people want to believe that there was some larger-than-life reason. When someone who's 52 is struck down in their absolute prime, someone who's in amazing physical shape, someone who's in, capable of amazing feats, is, yeah, it's a, it's, is snuffed out in their prime, you want a supernatural like, reason for it to happen. Or
2: something... Yeah, you know, so a conspiracy or something. Yeah, yeah. it's
0: not just um, an unfortunate
2: series of events. Yeah.
0: And... So Houdini and his wife had a special code between each other that was different from the the messages he had given to his other friends. Should they die ahead of time, it was um, an inscription on in her wedding band. Okay, that said "Rosabelle," and it was the name of the song she sang when they were in their first act together. And no one ever came through and said that. Um, she had started having these séances with her manager at the time and after the 10th one where he hadn't come through she said 10 years is enough to wait for any man <laughs> so she asked another writer of the mystery series the shadow Walter Gibson to carry on the yearly tribute and so he is the one he was the one that would continue to do the Houdini séance and he held them for many years at New York's Magic Townhouse with such notables as Houdini biographer, Milbourne Christopher. He then passed the tradition on to Dorothy Dietrich, who I believe is the woman who runs the Houdini Museum in Scranton. Okay. So there's a long line of people who continue to
2: carry on this, carry this, on this tradition. Gibson is really, really interesting, though. There's a case with him of a potential tolpa, let's say, where something he wrote came to life people see the shadow
0: oh yeah 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 I am we are not obviously I don't know if they're Houdiniologists or who I should probably know what Houdini aficionados call themselves but they are deep into Houdini people who are into Houdini are like I I feel like that um, trying to even do like a cursory story which is that is all that this is is a huge disservice because there's so much literature on Houdini. Houdini kept a bunch of his own literature. He has um, part of his collection is at the Library of Congress. The other part is at the Harry Ransom Humanities Research Center. And you can access all of that or a huge portion of it online. So if you want to see the actual letters, if you want to see part of Houdini's actual grimoires and diaries and and uh, scrapbooks, a lot of that's online. It's, it's a fun afternoon. <laughs> <if you're... laughs>
2: yeah, at the one point when you were researching this, I just said, you, you just kept saying, I, I don't think I've done enough research. I just, said, there's too is, much. There's... This is the kind of topic where you literally could do a whole podcast on Houdini and keep going. You know oh, I mean? yeah, like, 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 like a weekly Houdini. Y- yeah, 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 yeah. and
0: there are people who are, have um, Houdini blogs and have. there are several Houdini museums. He, he's a character with many facets. You yeah. Really could,
2: so, uh, yeah, please consider this a, a brief overview of Houdini. Of and his one little
0: aspect of Houdini. And I, his
2: relationship to the spiritualist movement.
0: I, but I think the, the, the larger thing, the thing that's so fascinating to me is that I think this is kind of what you found out when you were researching Toad Road, is that while well, the myth that had been purported, is not based in any sort of scientific fact or, or actual history. That doesn't mean that there isn't something weird there. It doesn't mean that weird things don't happen there. Right. And I think that's kind of the gist with, with this, you know, it's like, while certainly people who have animal parts coming out of their noses are probably spiritualist frauds, does that negate all of spiritualism? I don't think personally that it does.
2: Yeah. I think that. uh there's a lot of weirdness yeah, that there's has a happened lot of... around that stuff that you know, I always point to the people who make the crop circles. Mm-hmm. People admitted to making crop circles is yes, we made them. We go out in the fields and we made them. Not all of them can be explained that way. Some of them appear in like, you know, 20 minutes mm-hmm. or something, but some of these crop circles, you know, at least people were saying, yes, we went out, but they said, but when we're out there making them, weird stuff happens all around us. We will see orbs, we will see like oh this weird stuff will happen. So I always think about stuff like that. like when you're sort of courting this stuff, you're you're sort of calling I mean, in other weirdness around you.
0: even while you're uh, engaging in fraudulent spiritualism, is that not an act of like magical intent in itself? like even if it's even if it's fraudulent, is it not?
2: yeah I you know there's a lot to
0: it man here. I am really like <laughs> okay. the bar has been moved quite a bit since I started being a co-host of Strange Familiars <laughs> I think I just said a couple sentences ago that I, I didn't totally disbelieve in spiritualism <laughs>
1: welcome to the woo
0: <laughs>
2: well we did it We hit 60 patron shows now. October's patron show, Through the Haunted Forest, part five, I think. I think it's part five. Chad and I return to the show. Had some adventures, a possible report. Weird stuff. Then we go back to Bee Tree, where I've talked about on the previous patron episode, had some weird stuff. We find more weird stuff there, so it's a pretty neat episode on-site episode. I know everybody likes those.
0: I'm not trying to do math here, but for $3 a month for 60 shows, it's like 20 cents an episode. Right?
2: <laughs> Don't make me do math. <laughs> like am
0: <is> like, <it> $2 an episode is 20 cents an episode. Is it- if
2: you become a patron of Strange Familiars, mm-hmm. patreon.com slash strangefamiliars, you get all 60 of those patron episodes right away. You can listen to them right away. You can spread them out over time space them out and we drop more patron shows all the time we should be doing a halloween show for patrons as well this month so patrons should get two episodes this month there are yearly options as well now if you just want to subscribe for a year
0: we're not going anywhere like we we literally are not going anywhere (laughs) (laughs) we have plenty of time to do episodes
2: you can check out all the different options at patreon it's patreon.com slash strange familiars if you don't like the idea of a monthly or yearly subscription like patreon you can make a one-time donation via paypal go to the show notes under any episode look for the paypal.me link you can click that and make a one-time donation everyone can help by sharing the show on social media by liking and subscribing wherever you're listening, whatever podcatcher you use, and by leaving us those nice five-star reviews, which helps get the show in front of new potential listeners. This guy's wearing a duster. (laughs) Which takes on new meaning, if you're an Always Sunny fan. They're always arguing over who gets to wear the duster. This,
0: this guy got to wear the duster. This
2: guy got to wear the duster. I'm going to say he's a gunfighter.
0: It really... It could be as much as like he was... This is like a souvenir tin type, mm-hmm. So he could have been dressed up in this, you know. Dressing up in clothes from another time period or dressing up like someone else is not like a, something that started happening in the 50s and 60s. Oh, really? Yeah, so... <laughs> He could have been adopting someone else's clothes. Although the the outdoor setting, I tend to believe that he was probably at some special event and had his picture taken at an like an outdoor itinerant photo studio.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the the embossed mat is really neat too.
0: So while tintypes become popular during the Civil War, people continue doing tintypes into like the twenties and thirties, especially for uh, as souvenirs mm-hmm. seaside. Locations or at special events, and they they take on a slightly different look than the earlier tin types. Sometimes they almost are; they're on like a really thin emulsion that almost looks plasticky. And um, this one looks slightly um, like that. A magnet does stick to it, so, so it, is, it, it is. It is iron. a ferrite. Yeah. yeah, it is a ferrotype. But they, but it's in this. Um, it's still sealed in its original mat, which is highly embossed in silver and and does not look like um 1860s era looks a little bit more um like a turn of the century Mm -hmm. kind of thing is he holding a cigar or pointing at people i mean he's like this withered old guy i mean it could even be like a gar meeting or something yeah who knows he's just a curious old figure in it's it's a little larger than your average like six plate tin type, so mm-hmm. it has some presence.
2: I think i think he was a Bigfoot hunter.
0: That makes sense. hmm But why is he outside? Isn't shouldn't he be in front of a computer? Oh, oh
1: Bigfoot Hunter <laughs> slam. <laughs> <laughs>
0: He has the duster. That's really all you need to know.
2: Right? now it's a really cool photo. This will be our photo of the week, obviously, since we're talking about it. I will put a photo of this in the show notes. You can click on that. It'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase this and other photos of the week. We still have a few left in there.
0: Yeah, he's pretty unusual. Yeah. Classic duster.
2: Also in the Etsy shop are Strange Familiars t-shirts with the classic Awoken Tree logo. We have all sizes right now, small through 3XL. The 3XLs sell quickly though, so just a few of those left. Check that out. There's artwork of mine in the Etsy shop, different price ranges from uh, cheaper pieces to more expensive pieces. You can order my book there, as I mentioned before, my new art book, Apparitions, Illustrations of the Other. You can order all my other books there as well. Where the Footprint's End, Beyond the Seventh Gate, Don't Look Behind You, Bigfoot in Pennsylvania, and Bigfoot West Coast Wildman. I'm really looking forward to the time where I have so many books that I can't list them all.
0: Oh, um, that would be nice.
2: I'm I'm going after Nick Redfern. <laughs> He's been writing longer than I have, so i got a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> I'm coming for you, Red Fern.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I hope to have more of a, a dedicated kind of strange familiars pop-up store within our stand at American Daydream pretty soon. So maybe we'll even be able to bring some t-shirts in there. And so if people are local and don't want to pay the postage, it just would be a good way to do it and maybe support a uh, really cool antique store.
2: And pop in to American Daydream, which is on... East Market.
0: Yeah, the old Lincoln Highway. In York. Across from the former Dr. Crandall's Health School, which hasn't been there since the 1930s.
2: But it has a connection to Toad Road and beyond the Seventh Gate. Before we go, I want to mention once more our friends at Karmic Garden. You can find them on Etsy, Etsy.com slash shop slash Karmic Garden, or you can just type in Karmic Garden, one word. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. They sell soaps, uh, scented hand sanitizers, natural cleaners, candles, beard balm, and more. I use their soap. It's wonderful. I think they're making a special Strange Familiar scent as well. Go ahead and check them out. Karmic Garden, trusted remedies made from Mother Nature. And that's all for this week. We'll be back soon with another episode of Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more, darkhollerarts.com. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. You can find more at stonebreath.bandcamp.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. And we're on Instagram, at strangefamiliars.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, in introducing my original invention, the water torture cell, although there is nothing supernatural about it, I am willing to forfeit the sum of one thousand dollars to anyone who can prove that it is. Possible to obtain air inside of the tortoise when I'm locked up in it in the regulation manner after it has been filled with water. Should anything go wrong when I'm locked up, one of my assistants walks to the curtain, ready to rush in. Demolishing the glass, allowing the water to flow out in order to save my life. Harry Houdini, October the twenty nineteen hundred and fourteen, Flatbush, New York. <laughs>